there's a lot of thought leaders out there that are saying you know, we really need a different approach with oncology, is thinking about the changing event. Not the kill event, which is secondary, but how we alter the epigenetics of that tumor in a broader sense to turn it back into a tissue that it originally was or turn it back into the tissue where it now resides. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Ira Pastor, welcome to Human OS Radio. Thank you for joining me. Tell us about yourself. So I am a 30 plus year veteran of the traditional pharmaceutical industry that has spent time in various facets or another of this segment from retail to big pharma to, to small biotech. But at my heart, I'm still a kid that came up reading comic books and watching science fiction movies and always being interested in how I could advance the human condition and realize some of the future that I only read about in fiction and saw on the pages of those comic books. So people say how to get involved in sort of this cutting edge area of regenerative medicine and biotech. It was really started at a very young age. And let's say I honed it and I learned quite a bit on the job the last 30 years. But a lot of it goes back to sort of just a childish enthusiasm for creating the future and what could be. Tell us about your company, BioQuark. We are a life sciences company focused on how we can induce endogenous regeneration and repair and rejuvenation, so three R's, of our complex organs and tissues. We spend a lot of time studying those organisms which inhabit this planet with us, which from a health and wellness perspective are just so further advanced than we are today. And whether that refers to the members of, say, the amphibian kingdom that can replace lost or damaged organs and tissues that are identical in structure and function throughout their lifetime, including you know, spinal cords and limbs and large segments of hearts and brains, or whether it is the, the cancer reversion skills of organisms like planarians, which get cancer but shrug it off as if it was the common cold and just turn tumors into normal, healthy tissue, or whether it's the far end of the spectrum. There's organisms out out there that do not age. There are those that like to age in reverse. And there's even a few that die and are reborn. And needless to say, we're very weak as humans when, we, when it comes to accomplishing these feats. But we wanted to, uh, you know, basically our mission is to change that and how we reawaken some of these capabilities in humans using the tools that have been developed the last hundred years in the biopharma space. Ultimately, we're a biologic biopharmaceutical company that is looking to create products, pharmaceuticals that can endow stimulate these capabilities for really important degenerative and reparative needs in unmet medical diseases. What's the philosophy about why humans haven't either maintained or developed the same regenerative capabilities as some of the examples that you've provided? Well, the main one, which a lot of the evolutionary biology people will talk about, is the fact that in our transition through evolution around the time where we, as mammals, separated from reptiles, the way our circulatory system developed, we became very significant bleeders. We are a species that bleeds very rapidly. We die from the loss of blood very rapidly. And our systems over time were biased for very strong thrombosis and fibrosis to keep that blood from getting out. 
Rapid wound healing is a wonderful thing for us, but it is not a friend of the slow, meticulous regeneration that we see in nature. That being said, at the same time, we do maintain some regenerative capability. We have physiological turnover in all of our rapidly dividing cells, blood, epithelial layer of skin and gut. We do have some hypertrophic regeneration capabilities in our liver if we ever come across acute damage where uh, we will not have proper structural regeneration, but the liver will increase in both cell count and size to take one missing function. And then most importantly, I like to point out that we do have some pretty decent reversion capabilities in our tissues. You know, the ability of, I give the example, you know, when cell A in our body somewhere starts going wrong and undertakes an oncogenic transformation, it's basically cell B, C, D, E, and F in the immediate microenvironment that nudge it back into shape. That is a very rudimentary form of reversion, which we don't see on a huge scale in humans, but nonetheless, it is a sort of a vestigial remnant of that process. So you're looking to understand that the microenvironment of tissues and how this regeneration could be intervened upon to fix things that are damaged in the body over the course of life. Exactly. We have great proxies for it in the sense that we have nature to look at. We have all of the non-human species that from a genetic perspective, although we all look kind of different, we're pretty much genetically the same. So we have a lot of things to work with. And at the same time, we have just the examples in humans, such as in early embryonic development, where there exists this morphogenetic capability to replace what's missing and revert a disease state. So we have a lot of good information that evolution the last couple billion years has put in front of us, and we're going to derive that information and, and translate it into therapeutic opportunities for humans. And these opportunities, you describe them as combinatorial biologics, and I'd like to break that word down. So talk to us about biologics. What are those? And then this idea of combinatorial or combination. Talk to us about the technology. Biologics are any drug treatment that are produced in living cell systems are either protein, carbohydrate, or protein and carbohydrate based and do not have an exact composition of matter as a synthetic chemical might. Biologic examples are everything from growth hormones to interleukins, interferons, insulin, and vaccines as well. When we put the word combinatorial before it, we are referring to, in a particular case, the interest to develop drug or therapeutic interventions that do more than one thing. Mm -hmm. The pharmaceutical industry for the last hundred years has been very based on uh, what is referred to in the industry as sort of the single silver magic bullet. They like developing single biologic moieties or biochemical moieties that do one thing. That is what they've been good at and it's what is easy for them to get approved. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about, God forbid, your arm gets chopped off, growing an arm back is a very complex process. There is no single magic bullet that will ever, for now to infinity, ever do that. It is a combination of biochemical activities that gets that done for the newt or the lizard. So we are studying what these processes are and how we can put together combinational interventions as opposed to single magic bullets. We see some of this in the market today. You see combination therapies for, of course, cancer. You see it in the case of HIV. And then you see therapeutics, some of which are on the market uh, for a long period of time, which are combinations. We don't really think of them, but they exist. So it's really moving beyond the silver bullet thinking to more systems-based thinking on what a therapeutic may look like that does multiple things.
Biologic is a form of a drug or intervention replicating what is found in the human body or in nature. Combinatorial means that it's having more than one effect, but also it sounds like it can contain more than one substance in the formulation. Is that true? Perfect. Talk to me about some of the applications that you feel combinatorial biologics can affect in the near term. And what are some of the potential moonshots, just so we can get the scope of what we're looking at here in terms of what could be addressed? Sure, absolutely. And just taking a step back to the big picture, when you put that $7 trillion that we spend around the world nowadays on health care, when you cut out infectious diseases, the majority of all of that money is spent on either diseases that have an underlying cellular degeneration component. Mm-hmm. So you think your Alzheimer's, congestive heart failure, Parkinson's, diabetes, and so forth, or have an underlying cellular damage component, fibrotic disorders, cancer, autoimmune diseases, chronic inflammation and pain, and so forth. So both of those baskets, which represent close to $7 trillion that we spend nowadays, are in our purview. So what are we working on and where do we see us? The three R's, as I mentioned, regeneration, repair, rejuvenation. So in the regeneration front, we are very interested in the central nervous system. We have been actively studying models of things like traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's disease, not just focusing on how we regenerate neurons in the proper structure and function, the proper morphogenetic structure of neural tissues, but at the same time, how we can erase epigenetic reprogramming of those tissues, the earlier stage damage, because as you're aware, what are we learning nowadays? We're learning that Alzheimer's, yes, it's this horrible degenerative disease, but there's a lot of pathology that comes before uh, we get to neuroregeneration, and whether that's classifying Alzheimer's as a type 3 diabetes or an inflammatory disease, there are a lot of changes that are occurring in those tissues earlier on. So we're looking at both sides of the equation there. At what point can these combinatorial biologic intervene? Does a condition or damage need to occur, or are there wellness applications that are intended for prevention itself? We think the entire spectrum. So we are looking at both in our corporate strategy, that we have disease interventions, we have late-stage disease interventions in terms of recapitulating and regrowing neural tissue. We have the earlier-stage sort of epigenetic damage damage that occurs in some of these tissues. And then very early, we think there are indeed health and wellness type interventions, whether they're supplements or functional type foods, that also very early on in the process in the sense that if we think of a long-term metabolic dysfunction that can occur, where we could also earlier intervene throughout the continuum of something like uh, neural health. So we think there are interventions on all fronts. Obviously, a lot of the time we spend in the lab is at the far end of the research but at the same time, we keep our eye on these other things like you're involved with regarding neurotropics and, and what have you. So these are interesting as well to us. And the CNS is just putting my old school big pharma hat on. It's just such a unmet need, not just with what we see in the world today, but with regard to what's coming in the next 10 to 20 years. And when you see, you know, last week, Pfizer, fourth largest drug company in the world, just abandoning Alzheimer's and Parkinson's research altogether, that's a problem. Yeah. So we really need to have new ways to address these issues. It's been an expensive and fruitless approach so far, and perhaps we need a different approach altogether to make some inroads. Yes. So other things that we're working on, so we move from regeneration to more of the reversion front. We are very active in oncology and really the study of how reversion dynamics occur where tumors and oncogenic transplants 
transformations can be erased and turned into normal tissue. Now, this has been something that's been known for about 90 years now, that actively regenerating environments, whether those are limbs of amphibians or whether they are embryos, we even see the dynamic in the plant kingdom, actively regenerating microenvironments have a wonderful capability to organize in tissue that is healthy and organize out tissue which is not required. Mm. And we have known about this cancer reversion capability for years. We just want to, with combinatorial biologic approaches, instead of looking at the kill event, which has sort of been the basis of a war on cancer one with broad spectrum chemotherapeutic agents, and even now in war on cancer two with more of the sniper rifle smart drugs, in both cases, there's this missing picture that whether you're blasting away tumors with chemo or whether you're targeting specific cells, you still are missing a large chunk of the cells that are not attacked, uh, whether that is the ones that you miss in chemo or the ones that targeted immunotherapy are just targeted for. And so we think a an approach that is definitely you know, beyond just us coming on stream, and there's a lot of thought leaders out there that are saying, you know, we really need a different approach with oncology, is thinking about the changing event, not the kill event, which is secondary, but how we alter the epigenetics of that tumor in a broader sense to turn it back into a tissue that it originally was or turn it back into the tissue where it now resides, starting over normal healthy tissue. So these are two big focuses of the company and what we've been active in regard to our internal research. Let's talk about your first generation bioquantine. And, and that's the first time I've introduced that term, but that is acronym for combinatorial biologics, bioquantine, mm -hmm. your BQA. Tell us about that. Sure. So this is how everything began. The place, as I mentioned, where you find some of these reversion dynamics occurring, well, most of them in humans, is in the early stages of fertilization following that event. In ooplasm, or the materials that you find in the oocyte, is where age reversal is found, where the epigenetic, the genetic cleanup is found, and where all of these sort of the morphogenetic determinants for that embryo are initially supplied to allow it to go on its forward journey. And this is the reason why all of our children are born age zero, why children are not born with chronic degenerative diseases of old age, you don't have a baby ever born with Alzheimer's disease, and why for the most part they come out with two arms, two legs, ten toes and fingers and so forth. So we've been very active studying the whole dynamic of ooplasm reprogramming, which is another discipline that goes back to the 1940s. Dr. John Gurdon in the UK in 2012 just received his Nobel Prize on this work, which goes back that far. However, since the 1950s, it's remained sort of a petri dish concept, mm -hmm. been used for cloning purposes, been used for developmental biology experiments in the 1970s. However, it was never really leveraged beyond that. And so we are taking it the next step, just like any other biologics derived from cell systems of this nature. We want to take the next level. How can we move beyond a Petri dish? We're not a stem cell company. We want to say, okay, yes, these reprogramming dynamics can be used to produce stem cells and for cell therapy, but we wanted to move it to the different level and say, look, there are very interesting potential candidates in these ooplasm mixtures that can create biologics. So that's the direction we went. Now, obviously, we cannot work with human eggs. Why? Because human females only make a couple hundred during the course of a lifetime, and they go for about $10,000 a cell for various purposes. So we work off the garden research and focus on a species, specifically Xenopus labus frogs, which have been used by the pharmaceutical industry, actually going back to the 1940s, as a wonderful 
wonderful species, which has been industrialized already, uh, which has ooplasm and eggs that are very similar to human eggs and which are industrial produced one and produce millions of oocytes at a time. So we can gather a much greater understanding of the dynamics and then also isolate, fractionate, purify specific peptides and proteins that are crucial in the process. That has been the path that we have taken to date in creating these first generation materials and what we're basing the initial program off of. So there are hundreds of moieties and microRNAs in the oocyte yolk. How are you determining the right combination of these intercellular contents to then have a healing and beneficial effect in humans? I would imagine that machine learning might be a part of your future business strategy. Absolutely. Actually, there's thousands of moieties that have been identified already over the decades in ooplasm. We fractionate, we do bioassay-guided fractionation, we do assays on purified entities, we do recombination experiments between individually. Basically, between my time in big pharma and biotech, I was involved in the phytochemical business. So uh, very similar to uh, developing any therapeutic, say, from a plant source, where you may take an extract of a and have you know 5,000 or you know 500 small chemical entities in there, and you fractionate, and you further decide from a pharmacologic perspective, from a pharmacokinetic perspective, you know what's useful, what is not. So we do a lot of work at that level. We do proteomics, we do microRNA arrays, we do a lot at the level of the minutia. But we do not forget that the power of it, just like the power of things in the phytochemical business, is not always in the most isolated substance, mm-hmm. but in the system in the grouping of substance. So we think we have, between the our work that we've been doing the last several years plus, a lot of what comes before us, and, and we openly admit we are, this this did not start with us. This started decades ago, and we are standing on the shoulders of some giants here, that there are a lot of good clues already as to what makes a good combinatorial biologic. And in certain cases, you know, remember, when it comes to some of these substances, even the ones that have been on the market for decades, you don't always know everything. Sure. You have to specifically, FDA is very interested in that you have a good reproducibility system in terms of bioactivity, bioequivalence, pharmacokinetics, and so forth. And some of it, you know, that's sort of the mystery of nature, right? Mm-hmm. The combinations and the unique systems dynamics that occur, you know, you can't always break it all down. And so sometimes too complex to reduce. And so we're sort of happy playing in that zone. We know it makes, from a drug development perspective, our CMC type work a little more difficult. But at the end of the day, we think it offers us something much more unique in a very standard drug system that has existed for the last few years. Have you been able to test your first-generation bioquantine in vivo? For the last few years, we've been studying quite a few animal models, mice, rats, rabbit, some cat work, actually, traumatic brain injury models, models of melanoma, some initial work in the area of skin care, some of induced wrinkling and alopecia models. Mm-hmm. So we've gone broad, looking at wide-spectrum regenerative and reparative capability, and then we have done some longer-term gerontological models. I mean, these are more 
multi-year long-term chronic administration studies in healthy animals because, you know, see if you're giving some sort of a long-term regenerative signal to a living animal, you know, what are the changes that occur over years? And the fascinating change that occurred was that we had uh, active substance groups versus comparators that live 70% longer. Mm. That's interesting. It's an interesting side effect. And obviously the ability to turn back age is found in uoplasm. It's a side effect. It's something needless to say as a rejuvenation company we're interested in. We haven't done too much more on that front. But nonetheless, we think it's it shows that there are promising long-term safety and tolerability profiles that are popping up for us. So we're happy to see that. Certainly seems indicative of a safety profile if you can make an animal live almost twice as long. And actually looking comparatively to other potential effectors of the aging process, an improvement of lifespan and by 70% is really significant. So that's really promising. I'm now wondering if that plus combination of things that might decrease nutrient signaling, improve mitochondrial health and functioning. Do you think that there's some synergy between the bioquantines and then other strategies, or is this sort of a better approach altogether because it's more holistic by affecting that microenvironment? I definitely think there's important synergies with all of those approaches. Now, we've not been able to delve too much into those dynamics in the sense that we've been pretty focused on sort of just that early embryogenic, morphogenic stage of development, where there's weird biophysical dynamics that occur and biomechanical dynamics as well. We think combinations of combinatorial approaches are potentially be even better. We just haven't gotten there yet. But definitely, whether it's autophagy or nutrient signaling or just many of these other approaches, which I think are all very relevant, mm-hmm. are going to be very useful. Now, as you mentioned, mitochondria, we know, although we haven't spent much time studying it, that organelle remodeling is a crucial dynamic that occurs in the early embryo in the first couple of weeks. That's required. Mm-hmm. Very early on, embryos don't like a lot of oxygen, and then it ramps up. Yeah, the short answer is yes. There's probably quite a bit of synergy that is worthwhile exploring on the longevity front as it pertains to those dynamics. So you've done work in various animal models, traumatic brain injury, cancer, skin wrinkling, hair loss, and there also are some indications of some gerontological applications, so improvements in aging. And early stage, you're going to be focusing more on cancer reversion and and organ repair, regeneration, and transplant. Is that Mm -hmm. another area too? Yeah, our main... U.S.-centric clinical program, as far as it pertains to the organ regeneration dynamic, is in the kidney. And this is what we have. We have a three-year plan for, for the clinic here in the U.S. And in there, we're focusing specifically on some of the orphan fast-track indications. You know, a lot of people that work in regenerative medicine are looking at sort of the larger picture today with stem cells in terms of the heart or the brain, kidney, kidney disease. Though there's many small diseases that make it up, it is still an area of significant unmet medical need. And we spend $60 billion around the world on either dialysis, organ transplant with rejection drugs. So our perspective from an endogenous regeneration, if we can keep you with those degenerating kidneys from going down either of those paths and keep you away from dialysis or transplant, Mm -hmm. we've done something important because there's a major gap in between there and early stage interventions. So we think that is another fruitful area for our own program, but we're open to the whole system. We're not afraid. There's just such broad scale 
potential possibility for this approach to affect really all organ systems of the body and then overall system health. So let's move to two disparate areas. One is your work with Reanima and then talk about some of the current health and wellness possibilities of this technology. So let's start with health and wellness because Reanima is the moonshot, I'd say. But what do you think is possible in terms of using this type of tech in helping people feel better, look better? We have been active for a little while now. We're just starting to get our feet wet in the commercial arena in regard to skincare. And we have a couple partners there and we will be announcing a couple more that we're bringing online. But in those specific cases, there is just an interest out there due to the combination of things we've been seeing in our lab in regard to, for instance, inhibition of pro-inflammatory cytokines Mm. in terms of the epigenetic reset that we see in a variety of skin cell types in the in vitro models, the in vivo work we do, some of what we're seeing now in assays related to hyaluronic acid, collagen A synthesis. A lot of what is important in skin aging and ultimately skin beautification appearance has excited people. And so you know, we're not consumer packaged good folks as much as we are pharma people, but we understand the market and we understand the requirements. So we are creating right now and have created through partnerships, a series of skincare products that uh, we're getting our feet wet with in different geographies. We have a partner in the Netherlands that is coming online, one in Thailand, and we're beginning to explore further markets for these opportunities. At the same time, a couple of years ago, we formed a small partnership in Russia. In the Eurasian Customs Unit, which includes Russia, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, we got this approval as a, a functional food ingredient over there based on some of the historic use of Xenopus caviar, let's say, in Africa, which actually, interestingly, from a ethno-pharmacological perspective, goes back into the year 1802 when the species was first identified and documented in the literature, where there are many cultures in Western Africa used it for a variety of purposes, from the basic health enhancement to sexual health to the use in modulating menstrual cycles of women in Africa, because these eggs were originally in the 1940s used as our original pregnancy test in the United States. So, mm. so there's a really interesting backstory here, but nonetheless, uh, they were consumed as foods in Africa. And so our partners in Russia were leveraging some of that in their initial research in the area of hypothyroidism, where we are seeing some very interesting initial results in our oral applications, improvement in glucose control, improvement of various thyroid hormone levels. So we are beginning to see the possibilities of where we fit in, in terms of functional nutrition, nutritional products, and continually optimizing the oral delivery, which is far from perfect at this point in time. That's a still tough road, but we are working on it. And we are at least excited by some of what we're seeing. So at least for the applications that are being explored to be commercialized, these could be a consumed pill or topical? Yeah, so we have topical and oral formulas primarily in the form of liposomes and, mm-hmm. and once again, combining with some natural protease inhibitors. We just want to keep it as a nice environment for these substances <laughs> so they have a nice ride through that hostile gut. And are there challenges with the regulatory environment in the United States that prevents the commercialization of these substances here? Or can people in the United States get access to them if they wanted them? On the skincare front, we have no problem there. Mm. Obviously, this is not a food sub substance yet that has been ingested by large populations in the United States yet. But we think there are some paths, let's say, around that. And we are exploring that with our regulatory uh, lawyers right now. Great. Let's move on to the Reanima project. This is perhaps one of the moonshots I'd consider. And uh, I'd love to hear more about what this is. 
and this obviously got a lot of people excited when we first started talking about it last year. It is a very exploratory program, but it was designed initially to target an area of research that has gotten little attention, close to zero research dollars over the years, namely uh, the severe disorders of consciousness and starting with the most severe, which is brain death, which is the main reason that we all leave the world every year and is the definition of death around the world. World, uh, in most countries, the, the whole brain definition where there needs to be irreversible loss of function in the, uh, the cortex and the brainstem. Uh, in some countries, they just use the brainstem definition, but that's a different topic. So basically, mm -hmm. we sat back. There was a lot of public exposure to the concept with uh, cases like Whitney Houston's daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, and, and Jahai McMath in California that brought the topic to the fore. But we're sitting here as a regenerative biology company, and we know two things. Number one, there's many species in nature whose brains can be destroyed, in some cases cut out entirely, that regenerate in perfect structure and function and are mm. species entirely happy. This includes implanarians, includes amphibians. We see it in metamorphic insects. So we even see it in small mammals who hibernate for six months out of the year. Mm. Combine that with the fact that when you go into the literature, even though in 1968 brain death was labeled irreversible by the Harvard Ad Hoc Protocol, there are many cases, a few dozen, that you will find where there are cases of natural brain death reversion, primarily in very young individuals who maintain some type of neurogenic niche. Mm. Lastly, you have the area of living cadaver research, which may be unknown or unpalatable to many, mm. but this is an area of research that has gone on in many countries, including the U.S., for a few decades now, primarily for using humans that donate their bodies for toxicology, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamic studies, as well as for residents to practice surgical techniques and test novel medical devices. We basically put this all together. We said, look, why can't we do something a little more constructive with the living cadaver research model with tools that we have in 2018? Because 1968 was a long time ago when we first to find brain death as irreversible. And so once again, it is a very early stage project, but nonetheless, the goal is to using combination technologies, not just what we're involved with, but also stem cells and some of the more biophysical tools that are used in the ICU nowadays to stimulate coma and PBS patients. Can we put a combinatorial protocol together that mimics, in essence, what we see in epimorphic regeneration in nature in organisms who regenerate their brains. And in essence, here we are. It is very early stage. We've only taken some baby steps so far, but we feel it is a legitimate ethical area of scientific pursuit. And the trickle-down learnings for all disorders of consciousness, as well as the chronic degenerative diseases of the central nervous system, will be affected by it. It is a moonshot. Let's put it this way. If I was to bet, <laughs> we'll solve the blurring of death well before we cure cancer. Mm, wow. Now, we work on cancer, too. So, But I think death, unlike aging, which may have hundreds of things that trickle down to why we age. Death is one thing. At the end of the day, the death of the central nervous system is one cascade. And if we can appropriately target it, I think we can have some really interesting impact in the coming years. Let's talk about a hypothetical use case of this. Would this be for somebody who suffered some brain-destroying injury earlier in their life? So they're relatively young and they have established brain death. Or is this also sort of an end-of-full-life application where you can keep an otherwise healthy older person functioning for much longer? What are the borders on this potential? The former, what you mentioned, is the initial focus of the protocol. So cases primarily age 16 to 65 at the gray zone of deep coma 
an irreversible coma. And most of the people will tell you in the neurointensive community, it is always a gray zone, no matter what they say. Now, we are not talking about catastrophic trauma brain death that you might see in a war zone. We're not talking about time-sensitive brain death. And right now, we are not focusing on brain death as a sequelae of an incurable chronic disease. Mm -hmm. So a metastatic cancer that there's no cure for leading to brain death is probably not an important subject or a legitimate focus at this point in time. Now, all of that being said, putting us aside for a minute, the very concept of living cadaver support, and basically these are individuals who have recently been defined as brain dead yet are on cardiopulmonary support and are also on nutritional and trophic hormonal support, potentially is a very interesting area for sort of a place in between death and something like cryonics, mm -hmm. where if you can really maintain these or people appropriately and begin to think of some of the interventions, you know, not interventions 500 years in the future, a la cryonics, but really begin to explore some of the things that we just have not explored as a medical community, there may be some very beneficial outcomes for all of humanity. So there may be some very interesting suspended animation related mm -hmm. approaches to solve some problems related to the living cadaver system. Imagine somebody that has been preserved at the end of their life, they quote unquote die and bioquantines are used in a regenerative fashion prior to reanimation, bring somebody back to a healthy state, then bring them back to life. Exactly. If the technology was that far advanced, then the bioquantines could prevent the degeneration in the first place conceivably, but still it's really very interesting work you're doing. Talk to me about a roadmap. When all things go as planned, when do you think they'd be able to introduce your first bioquantine into the marketplace for a disease condition? What's the thinking there? Okay, so splitting the company now into its various components. So from a U.S. drug development perspective, we have a three-year plan on the kidney indication to be in the clinic with a five-year point of registration for a sort of a fast-track warfarin indication. So put U.S. now aside, we are a U.S. company, but at the same time, we are also very active in exploring and studying other geographies because as much as the U.S. is an important market for us and it's where we are, uh, we cannot ignore the fact that in today's globalized world of medical research and training that there are other areas that we need to investigate. Mm -hmm. And when you see things in today's world, like, you know, the Harvard Medical School that is operating in Dubai or Walkenor Medical Center in Qatar or Newcastle University operating in Malaysia, you begin to realize the scope of this internationalization of medical research. So we are beginning to get active elsewhere. We have a partnership in Thailand. We have one in India. We have something shortly coming online in the Middle East. East. But, you know, the smart people will tell you that U.S. is an extremely important market. But look, if you can save one year into the clinic in Southeast Asia or the Middle East or Latin America that helps move the program forward, you have to do this today. You know, this isn't like 30 years ago where the pharma industry ignored the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one only needs to look at and point out to what Merck did last year. You know, the fifth largest drug company in the world signed an agreement with the government of China and they created basically a tropical island where, you know, if you're dying of cancer, mm -hmm. you can access Merck's immunotherapies that are in development today. Yeah. And this is unheard of when you think that medical tourism is sort of a niche. But here, the you know, fifth largest drug company in the world partnering with the largest government in the world to do this, we really see other governments and regulatory systems doing things that are creative and are potentially, you know, we need to copy here mm -hmm. sooner than later. So we hope we can get to market sooner elsewhere, but we'll be announcing that uh, when it's set in stone.
Ira Pastor, CEO of BioQuark. This has been a fascinating conversation. Excited for what you guys are doing and where you are. It doesn't seem to be a technology that we have to wait 50 years. It could be available within our lifetime to have a serious impact on quality of life, disease reversion, health maintenance. And so thank you for all the work that you're doing to forward this and coming on to Humanoise Radio today to talk about your work. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all the work you're doing and exposing the world to all the exciting things that are happening, not just in our area, but uh, all areas of health and wellness, great thing you're doing. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.